As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me two people who have been heroes, icons, teachers of mine throughout my yoga career for the last 22 years from a distance and a couple of times in person in those basement yoga conference uh, classes back in the day in New York City and San Francisco. Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor, welcome to the podcast. It's so nice. It's so nice. We share space on Yoga Glow and that's how I that's how I know your work now. But then, you know, it was it was a real privilege to study with you at the Yoga Journal conferences. So I just want to say thank you in advance for this and, and also for that. Richard, you began studying yoga in 1968. And you were focusing on Hatha, contemplative Buddhism, and the Ashtanga and Iyengar methods. You now teach, obviously, throughout the world, except for right now. And your video, your video series which is called Yoga with Richard Freeman, did set the gold standard for modern Ashtanga yoga. Mary, you are studying and practicing yoga since 1972, woman, teaching throughout the world. Wow. I was born in 1970, and I feel like I've been around for a while, so this is a real privilege for me. You co-founded the Yoga Workshop in Boulder, Colorado, and that was back in 1988. But we're here today to talk about two things, actually. One is your most recent book, When Love Comes to Light. And two, I want to start by thanking you in advance for uh, The Mirror of Yoga, which was your previous book. What I learned from that book is informing, I would say, everything that I've done for the last, I don't know, when did that book come out? Decade ago? Eight years ago? I forget. Something like that. The, the teaching on Ahimsa in that book changed my life, guys. Changed my life. Changed how I look at people. Changed how I look at family. The whole idea that Ahimsa is actually a way to remember not to cast anyone out, but actually to just, you know, keep everything in good stead within yourself and don't do too much, but also don't push anything away. Literally changed everything for me. So I want to say thank you for that, too. But this book is magic. When Love Comes to Light is bringing wisdom from the Bhagavad Gita to life. And I've pulled a lot of quotes from this, and I love to read to my guests some of their own words, and then we can talk about them. Um, because I think my listener enjoys hearing bits of the book and getting a smattering of what motivated you to write and share that with us. So we'll start like this. Perhaps one day we will look back and see this as the age of extremes that catapulted us into a new age of insight, because beneath this chaos and separatism 
woven into the strands of divisiveness that seem to be tearing us apart. There's also a palpable craving for connectedness, truth, and sustainability. I appreciate that so much more so than ever right now as we are in, you know, end of September 2020, we are bordering on, gosh, chaos, actually, in this world, particularly in this country. And I would love to hear you both or either one of you expound on what brings you to that understanding that there is, in fact, this new, beneath this chaos and separatism, there is this palpable craving. Oh, well, we have a palpable craving. <laughs> <laughs> Same. Um, it's, and the thing is, this, it's always, we, because that was composed, you know, that was a year yeah, and a half year ago. year and a half ago. And we didn't have the COVID crisis. Or the Black Lives Matter crisis. Yeah, yeah. Had, uh, a lot of suffering going on. And, uh, and a lot of politics, uh, mm. even within the, uh, the world of yoga. Mm. And then, of course, just relationships between people mm. all over the world and then between different lineages of uh, cultures. Um, it's kind of sad. And so we uh, thought, well, not only does the Bhagavad Gita, but uh, the, the depth of any of these real traditions, what they're teaching is relationship with other beings. That uh, if there's any being uh, that you cast out of your heart, even bad one, then it's going to upset, uh, upset you. It's going to up, and uh, then you, you won't see them correctly and you won't be able to communicate with them. You won't be able to help them. And then also, I feel like that, that does cause this very serious and real uh, warping, I feel, inside of myself. I've had that experience of casting someone out and upon reading The Mirror of Yoga, and this also reiterated that in so many ways, I realized that I was harming myself by doing that and that it was causing it within me a great deal of pain. Um, you know, yeah. that's the real um, juice in understanding why it is so important to, to really pause when we are in crises, mm. when we have been, you know, in a situation that is, is complex or, <clears throat> you know, where we have difficulties with others or political situations to pause and really tap into something deeper than the immediate reactionary response. Right. And you're so right about that because what then happens when we get that distortion within ourselves is that our actions then uh, feed the flames of discontent and div divisiveness and mm -mm. difficulty. And yeah. Everyone suffers. And so, um, you know, you can't start anywhere but within yourself, which is right. not easy to do. Right. And especially these days, when there's so much unknown, so many, um, on every level that we look, every front that we are facing, there are difficulties. 
And so the only thing any of us can do is find, is tap back into the visceral feeling, like Richard said in the beginning, is we wrote this because we felt it. Right. You feel this sense, just like you're saying, and you just have to start from there and proceed. Um. Human suffering and equally hope and kindness are nothing new, you said in the book. Granted, the particulars have changed, but the underlying difficulties and joys being on this remarkable planet in this extraordinary human form are pretty much the same today as they've always been. But if we're lucky at some point in there, we begin to wake up. We experience the paradox of living alone encased in this sack of skin we call me, while simultaneously recognizing the immeasurable beauty of being an integral part of a limitless, interconnected, finely tuned web of existence. Quite by accident, and my listener can most likely identify with this particular part. Quite by accident, we taste the nectar of trusting the process of life with an open heart and open mind, realizing that we are the center, yet part of a unified whole, separate but not separate at all. This, I think, is one of the finest opening sort of teachings of the book, and we know, obviously, getting into the Bhagavad Gita, into the story, the myth of it, that this is, you know, one of the seminal teachings. We are, you know, Arjuna, the center, yet part of this entirety, separate but not separate at all, having to make choices that are difficult but really necessary. And you go on to say that the passageway toward freedom from suffering turns out to be a process of learning to trust, letting go of habitual patternings of mind, perception, and emotion that keep us trapped in loops of self-absorbed separation. This is where I want to sort of mine both of your experience and expertise. The idea of letting go of habitual patternings of mind, perception, and emotion. This is something I know that my listener is keenly interested in learning from you. And I think it might be interesting for both of you to talk a little bit about your personal experiences of that letting go as you've grown as teachers, as humans? Well, you know, the very first step is noticing it. <laughs> and, and in that section you just read and throughout the book, we make an underscore the point that all of this is a process. So the very first step in that process is uh, actually that whatever it is arises, the habitual pattern arises and then the next step is the step you actually engage in is noticing it and then th that can be a period of time that lasts a long time before you get it together or figure out what it is you need to do to actually then take action to change the pattern mm -hmm. and then one realizes and this you know is happening for many of us, including me these days sometimes, is habitual patterns of anxiety, fear, or lack of trust bubble back up because they're well-worn ruts of habitual behavior and emotion that are in my nervous system or in your listener nervous system and triggered. And so then you have to notice them again and start over from the beginning. Mm -hmm. right. And if you notice them, 
you also have a kind of an intuition that they are a story, uh, that it's not actually you, because uh, you are just the process of noticing. That's why that interesting uh, word of trust, uh, which is shraddha, uh, and shraddha, and, and by trust we don't mean, it's often translated as faith, which uh, it's a translation we don't like because that just means you accept a dogma and part of your intelligence doesn't accept it. And, but Trata actually means the ability to suspend the need to know in a uh, where you're completely satisfied and you, in a sense, stunned the mind so that it doesn't have to make any kind of knowledge structure. It's almost like you're looking at stories, you're looking at all the story, the myths of you and the stories of the world, many of which are pretty good, and some of them are pretty bad. But if you have this trust, uh, then you're allowed to not know. And in that not knowing, it turns out that there's this extreme, uh, I don't know if the word is pleasure, or it's a kind of selfless pleasure or satisfaction that then allows you to uh, act in the world without acting egotistically. So you can, you know, see that each being, each person, or, you know, it doesn't even have to be a person, each, each being is the center and is precious, and you mm -hmm. can feel them, you know, deep in your heart. And how do you work with that? Richard, Mary, both of you, how do you work with that when we look at the political landscape in this country, at least, or really in almost any country, there are a lot of um, leaders cropping up now who are, you know, really taking advantage of their position, let's say, and really creating a great deal of chaos, divisiveness, precisely the opposite of discrimination discriminating awareness is what I mean to say. How do you reckon that? How, how do you reconcile that within yourself? So, yeah, you have to see them deeply um, so that uh, you don't necessarily, you can't, you don't want to be sympathetic in the sense you believe their uh, conspiracy theories or their uh, crazy stories. Which yes, yes, yes. But at the same time, you 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 see the the uh, what surrounds them. In other words, you're kind of looking through them, um, and so that you see you had the same potential in your own mind to be just as demonic or crazy as them. But uh, you don't want to go to that level of suffering. Right. So the Gita is interesting in the particularly chapter 16, I believe, is on the demonic. And so it talks about psychopathic persons. In fact, Arjuna's uh, cousin at the beginning of the book was a psychopath, very evil, uh, Duryodhan. And, right. Uh, he had to, and you never find out whether it would be best for him to uh, stand up and fight because Duryodhana, if he'd win, it would be a terrible thing for uh, humanity. But then 
in defeating him, you know, so many would die on both sides, and it might that also might be worse. And uh, Krishna never actually answers that. He wants Arjuna to look and look and more and more deeply. And Arjuna was also a diplomat. And it turns out in the actual story, they did fight. <laughs> and it was a disaster. But uh, how to deal with that? And so the, the Gita, you know, really s makes you, you know, see the... Um, to see the kind of evil ways of the psychopath and to also, if it's skillful, to negotiate with them or to actually stop them or to pull. You know, it depends on the circumstances totally for each individual. And, and so part of what we're faced with today, you know, this insanity that's going on worldwide in many, many countries, um, and in the United States in particular. We've been out of the country. We were gone for eight months and are now back. And it's just shocking to step back in after having been gone during this period of time. And so disheartening. And yet yeah. also food yeah. for, um, you know, food for inspiration to work. Because what this allows us is, to, and what I'm seeing, what my personal view of this is, is that that the process of life on this planet is at stake in the world today. Mm. And that many of these forces that are um, sort of coming up in our face, and so the process of life that I'm talking about is environmental crises and the inability to communicate at a time in the world where communication is more easily accessible to masses of people than ever before. The nature of some of the communication um, channels just been programmed to not communicate necessarily 100% truthfully. And right. then all of the political um, difficulties and lies and uh, things that have come up. These, all of this, in some, from one view, all of this is a response, sort of like a panic response internationally, globally, to the fact that we cannot uh, go on behaving in the ways we have been behaving in terms of how we communicate with each other, how we separate ourselves out from each other and are not truthful with ourselves or with others that, oh, you know, I care a lot about um, the suffering of others, but thank God I can uh, be comfortable in my little mansion here on the hill. All of these sort of illusions, which actually go back to habitual patterning, uh, mm. the idea of cultural and um, you know, culturally emotional and, you know, habitual patterns have come to the surface and it's almost as if they need to be exposed. And as people who've been practicing yoga for a while or even just for a short time or people who are simply interested in changing the world, what we can do is what we would do um, just with our own habitual patterns, is to pause for a moment, look deeply, communicate deeply, be trustworthy, 
and make steps towards uh, you know finding connection and not uh, being sucked into the mindset of divisiveness so mm-hmm. that we can all lay our cards out on the table and see the full context of what's going on and behave like civilized human beings to one another. And so for some of the politicians, you asked me specifically, how I deal with that is to see them, as Richard was saying, to see their uh, confusion and their suffering, to not necessarily at all buy into it, but to realize that they too are in crisis. This is their response to seeing, oh, oh no, my world is crumbling beneath me. What we can do is be steady and stable um, and take action where we can, like voting Mm -hmm. and sending letters to um, senators or to um, politicians saying, I disagree with this or I agree with that. Um, And to be active in what we're doing, but keep the channel of connectedness, the open-heartedness to one another. Um, even when they're in the face of um, these extremes that were being hit by. Because it really is, you know, all of these levels, the, the calamities of the fires that are currently going on in California, mm-hmm. the earthquakes that have you know, rocked different parts of the world, and the hurricanes, etc., and then the political upheavals, all of these things are in our face. Yeah. And we have to come together and realize that only way we're going to make it through is to work together on this. Yeah. So many pages I want to talk about right now. Page 115, resistance to change, is a sort of layered phenomenon <laughs> that starts on an interpersonal level, as it does for Arjuna. When we are not operating from a perspective that is in concert with our circumstances, engaged in the effort of paying attention to the most minuscule level of perception of which we're capable, then change appears to be a threat to our very balance and stability. What you're suggesting here is to engage in the effort of attending to the most minuscule level of attention to become attuned to change, become one who allows for change and notice all that resistance and wake up to this interconnectedness so that we can trust change and also other. I'm skipping over now to 130 in the book. As the Gita opened, we found Arjuna on the battlefield, we all know this, in a crisis of conscience, faced with the seemingly impossible dilemma of taking one of two courses of action. We're all here right now each of which seemed flawed. Fight for the cause in which he believes, knowing great harm will come to the many he loves and respects, or to collapse in dismay, (laughs) sidestepping the problem, all of his responsibilities and his integrity. And in the beginning, this is why I'm so happy to talk to you guys now. In the beginning, these are the only two options he can imagine. But as the story progresses and he rides waves of thought and emotion while allowing himself to trust his beloved teacher and friend, Krishna, he starts to see that the picture is not as completely black and white as he'd first imagined. 
and perhaps there's a middle path. You go on to say that crises, by definition, are times of change that mandate letting go and trusting the unknown. There are times when the well-established functional and ill-functioning aspects of the ego must take a backseat to the context of the situation, and as such, crises can pose a threat to a strong ego, and this is why we practice yoga. You had mentioned a few pages earlier that every single, I think it was page 88, if I remember correctly, every single time is a time of death. And it's on us right now, if we're choosing ourselves, my listener, as yogis, to accept the fact that there are little parts of us that have to die in order to find our way through this morass, come out in a place of compassion and action at the same time. And take this mythological imagery, this story, and dare question and wake up and take action and do the right thing and vote and whatever side you're on. Vote, write letters, take action for the planet, take action for the people of color. This is, this is a real moment in history. And there, at no time has this, has this book been more important or salient, I feel, than right now. So we're taking action, but we're not 100% sure what the best action is. We just do something, and then we open our hearts to communication to get feedback. It's just like if you're helping someone, if you don't do anything, then obviously it's really bad, and you just take the best shot you have. And if you're not doing it out of a big, from an ego position, but you actually want to help, you look for feedback and they say, oh, that didn't quite work because of this or that. And then you go, oh. And without any attachment at all, you upgrade your theories about it and you gain more knowledge and you can then act more skillfully. Um, and so the book is really teaching yoga as the um, skill in action. Um, so it's like an art, but that art requires that you um, are able to completely let go, realizing that everything around you, even your thoughts, are impermanent. Uh, what to speak of your, your body or the planets or the bodies of any of the uh, participants in these stories. And when you can be comfortable with the idea of your actions being part of the process of change itself, then you can begin to kind of enjoy your ride and be, you have a lot more um, capacity that's opened up within you to be able to see um, options and to right. make choices. And so right. it really is that, that's, again, why it boils down to, you know, learning to trust. And just in case my listener doesn't know, just in case, this is a hymn. It's a mythological story, often known simply as the Gita or the Bhagavad Gita. And Richard and Mary have sort of given their mm, interpretation of it, let's say. And many are out there, but this is absolutely in my top three now. This particular hymn is a section of the Indian epic, which is known as the Mahabharata. Early roots 
in stories dating back as far as the 8th or 9th century BCE. And the full teaching was later told as a compelling narrative, as you say. Stories within stories, filled with deceit and bravery, love and betrayal, puzzles, paradoxes that turned it into a classic text for Hindus and others in search of freedom from suffering. Um, I, I think the most important aspect is what you've just articulated, Mary, which is it's not about a victory. It's not about uh, some sort of ending. It's teaching us that every possible approach has to culminate in love. It's the title of the book, When Love Comes to Light. What you're offering in this book, you guys, thank you, is that this is a guide for any of us when we find ourselves, as you say, perilously dangling between the horns of dilemma within a crisis or a difficult situation. Should we act or not? How do we know the correct course of action? The call, listener, is to study, learn, be patient, sit back, listen, watch, observe, and notice you're being led all the time. Something in you, some idea that you have about yourself has to die in almost every interaction in order for you to get through it in a way that stinks of compassion. And whatever the situation is, however ominous it is, however many people are suffering, we have got to put ourselves in the place of knowing that there isn't one answer and there are many actions. What's the best one that we could take right now? That's the big question. That's exactly it. Curiously enough, uh, Krishna never answers. And at the very end, he says, now that you understand the all beings, and you can see me in all beings and all beings in me, and do what you choose. He says, so you have to look and, and then stay open for feedback. And, uh, and so it's so important, the uh, ongoing process of inquiring, you know, like asking, asking good questions, you know, sincere questions in all dimensions of this experience. You know, the, from the most everyday practical to the most philosophical or religious even. And to stay physically grounded, to, to really be embodied and stay connected to the earth, to the body, and um, to be clear in what your intentions are in this world. Right. And to really look at every individual situation with the question in mind, what will serve? What will best serve? And you may be right or you may be wrong, but from your perspective, what will best serve? And then take some action and observe. And sometimes knowing that no action is the appropriate action. Right. Sometimes that's not true. So to really keep assessing and reassessing in that way. I have one last thing that I wanted to look at with you guys, which is the chapter seven. It's a point of inflection in the story. It's the first place in the Gita where all the three gunas are mentioned. I would love for you to share with my listener your take on the theory of the gunas and how that entire body of understanding affected the outcome of the story, if, if that's something that you could do. Yeah, one of our favorite lines is, 
guna guneshu vartanta. That means it's just gunas on gunas. And uh, because it sounds so much like the English word goon, I really like it. Of course. Um, but what gunas are describing is the process of manifestation of space and time itself through, and this is what we are always experiencing all, all day, every day. Everything you experience is a composition of these three gunas. And the first one is the tendency of the creative energy to make a thesis or take a stand. And that's called tamas. And then soon thereafter, you get uh, rajas, which is the antithesis. In other words, the background of the mind and the whatever the energy is, the, something in the background says, no, that one thing is not the whole thing. Uh, here are all the other points of view. And so then you have an antithesis, and then you could have a, a battle between thesis and antithesis until maybe there's communication. <laughs> and then you get synthesis. Uh, and in synthesis, there's this perhaps brief flash that it's this process of, uh, it's almost like a fizzing process of uh, joy in which there's uh, the revealing of consciousness and there's the revealing that um, everything is this composition of thesis, antithesis, and then it synthesizes occasionally, uh, which is joyous. And, uh, and so when we think we're not acting, the, the Gita reminds you, well, you're, you just blinked, you know, if you're hiding in the closet, not acting, uh, and you uh, cough, well, there was cough, that's an action. And, but, and then when you do act, uh, and you take up, you know, the sword of discrimination, or you uh, write the letter to your senator. <laughs> right, right. Uh, that isn't actually you, that is actually just gunas interfacing with gunas. And this is to remind you of this wonderful process of mind and body that is uh, this, what, you know, there are different names for it. And it's just this revelation of, ah, of this almost infinite beauty and this infinity that's in microscopic detail and then in macroscopic, you know, cosmic phenomenon. So we'd like to say it's just all goodness. And I would love to hear you lastly talk about the other two. Not just in Sattva. I know that several yoga teachers listen to this and I know that I myself would love to hear you expound on how they layer and alternate and it's almost like this massive infinite vesica Pisces where they just keep on shifting and morphing into one another. How does that aspect of tamas when you're not acting and rajas when you are acting come and sort of synthesize into sattva in your words? Um, when you're lucky. <laughs> no, so what's happening is the sattvic synthesis but often on planes that we're not uh, directly experiencing. Um, 
and and so if you really uh, are lucky and you're say in the presence of something that uh, is embodying in which you start to feel you know even the sensation in your skin uh, all over the body as being vibration you know rather than oh this is a composition of vibration or if you and this often happens when you um, in, encounter some some innocent being say like a puppy um, or a kitten or just you know somebody you connect to somehow uh, then all of a sudden you start to feel the infinity uh, that is both my you know that it's um, and then you you start to see that the essential nature of all that is unfolding around us is what we'd say is joy um, and and the essential nature is this sense of harmony but our you know our mistake as um, embodied human beings is that we latch on to different um, parts of the wave pattern of this process of the goodness rolling through um, things and we you know have attraction to or aversion to parts and then we want them to be constant or consistent or predictable and you know, sometimes it's it's easy to kind of think about the gunas on the gunas just as what the life cycle or the day cycle of, of a day is, where, you know, the dawn happens and there's this feeling, and many yogis experience this, where you're up early and the rest of the world is kind of still sleeping and it is very a very sattvic time. But then it starts to deteriorate and starts mm. to kind of, either you know shift from being this really amazing time of day with cool air and stillness etc into a time where things get kind of um, into habitual patterns and dull and then and then something comes along like midday and it's it just boots us it boots you into action and then by the end of the day this sort of feeling of harmony starts to manifest again. And then um, the pattern continues. So it's this natural pattern in our thought patterns, in our sensation patterns, in the world around us, that that just goes on all the time. And it's almost like uh, the tama. You can't have the whole thing without the tamas. The ego comes in and says, yeah, I do bhakti, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and I, therefore I know the real way. And, you know, initially with, you know, a, an identification that then the ego co-opted, and now I'm going to make everybody else in the world do it. <laughs> right. And, but you, you start there, and then the game, you know, or the, the, the intelligence, if, the more the intelligence is trained, the sooner you start to see, aha, that's being silly. And, and then you can laugh about it. But, yeah. I mean, it's really important you have to, to laugh at your own ego. Laugh at yourself. Or your own yes. anger. Yeah. Yes, um, yes, yes. All of the emotions, you know, they're with any embodied being, even 
the avatars. Uh, all of the emotions are there. It's just that they, with because of intelligence, buddhi, they're able to see through them, uh, so they don't get caught up. And then those like transmuted anger is is a very wonderful clarity, mind. And it's it's a fuel to allow you to then, you know, let go of your presuppositions and really kind of have your ego spontaneously dissolve at least for an instant. Yeah, yeah. With the world around you, sincerely yep. and authentically, and that's you know, and then suddenly that goes away, and you're back at square one again. Yeah, and lust and ambition are. Um, Wonderful, unless there's a an object they have. <laughs> so if you can, right. like, training the mind, training the intelligence uh, with uh, this compassion, uh, then you you are able to use you know all of these things that were you know essentially gates to hell. Then they become extremely useful. Because, in a sense, even though they're impermanent, they're not going away. <laughs> Personally, I have this experience almost every day where I have this latent kind of frustration that sits very familiar within me. And exactly as you said, both of you said it in different ways, but the transmutation of it by having a sense of humor about it and having a sense of humor about the object of whatever it is that I'm frustrated about that turns into anger. That transmutation, that moment where I could have gone that route and didn't, is such a clarity. <laughs> yeah. It's even clearer sometimes when you do go that route. <laughs> Every now and again, yes. And then I have to apologize. Exactly. Jinx. The very last sort of bit of your interpretation, <clears throat> page 135. We should offer our precious conclusions and our most skillfully crafted knowledge, along with everything else, into the fire of pure awareness as we look again. In this way, we contemplate what is before us openly and honestly in context of relationship, keeping all things in our hearts and with a spirit of setting things free. As such, there is no residue and we can fully embody a dissolution into the limitless spectrum of love's light so that the ultimate secret of secrets, wisdom, is born. And I think this ties everything up really beautifully. You go on to say a few more things about bhakti and, and the sort of culmination of this understanding, the, the non-culmination culmination. But I really appreciate the fact that the secret of secrets, the wisdom, is really just an understanding of oneself, which allows us to act well, you know, whatever well happens to be appropriately, let's say, that's a better word, whatever the situation is in accordance with whatever the dharma of the moment happens to be. You finally say that this is the teaching of the Gita that can serve us as we travel our unique and auspicious path through this lifetime, knowing we are intimately intertwined with everything else in search of a mutual awakening. Changes come, emotions bubble up, insights arise, habits slow us down, deaths arrive, sorrows and joys abound, and life goes on. We are faced with crises along the way. They are always part of every journey. 
Yet it is in the moments of crisis that we find opportunities to wake up to deeper, more connected, kinder, and more compassionate levels of awareness and behavior. Step-by-step, action-by-action, thought-by-counter-thought. I love that. Synthesis, antithesis. Thesis and antithesis. And breath by breath, there is always the possibility of waking up, coming home to the truth of who we are and what it is we are truly here to do. Lastly, it is at this point when we take refuge in the profound interconnectedness of life and embrace the freedom of releasing concepts and constructs, our ego, that transformation is nourished. It is here too that the brilliance shining out as love as bhakti resides. I want to say this to my listener, because this will get released in good time. All of the things that we need to release in terms of concepts and constructs, this is, I'm saying this to myself as well. Whatever you think is the right thing, whatever you think is the real truth, it's all a concept and a construct, both sides. And it's so important to remember that, guys, as you're listening Because if you think that you're right and everything else is wrong, you will end up in the heap of pain. And I just wanted the two of you to speak on that for a moment because it's such a fraught time in our history. And I think this is the most important thing that we can remember right now. And and you will cause great pain and suffering to others. So you will, and then that will compound your... Um, experience of your own pain because really truly if we any of us even the demonic um, those who you know would be looked at as demonic in the Gita the the thing that makes us happy is that we are connecting to others and that we are serving others that what we do makes others happy and that in turn makes us happy that there is tenderness of heart and a, a authentic connection no matter how brilliant your insights or ideas are if you stick too um, firmly to them under every circumstance no matter what unyielding they that action in and of itself will cause great harm to others and to you too. So it's so important to really set it all down. In other words, just we have these amazing vehicles called our bodies where we can really tune into gut instincts, gut feelings, Mm -hmm. and the feeling of love. Um, And those can be the guides and then the intelligence rides on them rather than the the actions being directed from above in our minds let them be directed from the heart so yeah any formula that you have even if it's an excellent formula any they call those dharmas um, you have to put it down uh, they say you should put it down and you sacrifice it or you expose it uh, to this, the pure intelligence or pure awareness. Uh, Because the formulation itself uh, is just a construction 
and you can't quite say what it's trying to say. It, it, it's there's complex metaphors are involved, uh, myths, and it's very important. You know, even your best plans and your best uh, collection of words, your best scriptures. Uh, you know, even if they come from other planets, uh, <laughs> you have to like place them. And the, the metaphor is you place them on the altar of just pure awareness. And then yeah. you let it go. You say, here, I let it go. Uh, because, and in the letting of it go, you experience that profound pleasure. Because you're letting it go just to share uh, the whole universe with all other beings. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's the ego slips in and... You, you can never upgrade your uh, dharmas, your theoretical positions, even if they're wonderful and didn't come from you. Um, you can never upgrade them until you put them down and right. let them go. Because there's a saying that the pleasure actually comes from letting things go uh, rather than clinging on to them. The end of this book um, is where you guys offer these very embodied exercises it's an appendix and i think this is kind of the best part of the book even though all of it is so utterly dog-eared and marked up already you say that since one of the primary teachings of the gita is the importance of tangible contemplative practices that enable us to embody and thereby fully assimilate the teachings this appendix of embodiment exercises at the end reflect the essential themes from the gita and this is, I think, for any yoga teacher listening, a crucial book to grab. Because when you look at the pairings of the exercises that Richard and Mary are offering, pairing with certain chapters, it is so useful in this moment to look at how these teachings and the practices that are offered can literally shift everything about your dug-in heels and thinking. I can't actually get over how useful they are. Page 281, last thing I promise that I'm letting you go. Step by step, dharma, intention, and motivation. This is what you pair with chapter 10. It is often said that through yoga and meditation, we're not learning new ways of being, but rather we are peeling away layers of habitual behavior that keep us confused, stuck, and out of touch with who we truly are on a deep level. Contemplative practices are not ways of learning, but of unlearning. This is so important. You offer this following exercise as a series of contemplative uh, contemplations designed to give insight into who you are as a bigger, as a part of the bigger picture of life. I think this is never more critical than right now. And you walk us through, and I'm not, sorry, my listener, it's page 282 of the book, and I am not going to tell you what it is because it's so good. It's helped me so much in the last several days. There are questions to ask. There's an actual sort of meditation to do, which you just read, and instantly you're in there because you can just hear Richard's voice and Mary's voice. And once you've established the grounds for understanding what strikes you as your essence through this practice, who you are, what your purpose is, then as Mary said earlier, you can feel that you are in a grounded, steady, sturdy, stable place, and you can take action accordingly. 
especially right now because so much of it is in our heads and in our phones. Get back into your body. And this, I feel this book is an absolutely critical aspect of my wellness right now. So just thank, just a giant, huge thank you. So much respect for both of you. Oh, thank you. Oh, well, so thank much. you for leading it. And, and, and thank you for, for really what you're offering to everyone through, mm. through other, you know, your work in the world. It's, mm. it's important. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. And um, more again soonest. Thank you for everything. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.